0: Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, here in the CSIS studio with Remains of a Cold and my co-host, <laughs> Jeff Mankoff.
1: I'm glad I'm uh, relegated to second priority in that. Hello.
0: <laughs> the cold is affecting me more than, more than you are. Um So in this episode of Russian Roulette, um, Jeff uh, sat down with Marina Litvinenko, and I'm actually looking forward to hearing um, this podcast. Ms. Litvinenko is an activist, campaigner, and she's the widow of Alexander Litvinenko, uh, the Russian dissident who was poisoned in London by Russian government agents some years ago, as differentiated from uh, Sergei Skripal, the... um, former Russian spy whose poisoning and his daughters was attempted by... Uh, well, they were agents. successfully
1: poisoned. They just they survived. They were successfully
0: <laughs> poisoned. They just lived. Yes. Okay. So what did you talk to uh, Marina Litvinenko about, Jeff?
1: Well, we talked about um, what happened to her husband, how she has uh, been received as she sought to discuss it, uh, both in Russia and abroad, uh, sort of about continuities between her husband's case and the, the Skripal case and a couple of other things, too.
0: So uh, I think uh, this is going to be an interesting conversation, and I'm looking forward to hearing it. And after that, uh, you get to uh, listen to us respond to some of our mail. Yes, (laughs) it's true. We will answer some mailbag mail. So let's get started.
1: I'm very happy to welcome to the CSIS studio today, Marina Litvinenko. Uh, Marina, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for having me, yes.
1: Of course, you became known in the West as a result of uh, the poisoning of your husband, uh, Alexander Litvinenko, uh, in 2006. Uh, And since then, you've uh, campaigned uh, on his behalf, on behalf of developing a response, I suppose, to um, those kind of activities. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about um, how your campaign's been received, how um, Western governments have have responded to the the things that you've been telling them?
2: Uh, Again, first of all, thank you very much for this opportunity to talk here. And after 2006, uh, we spent almost 10 years to bring a case of killing my husband for justice. We couldn't uh we were seeking for justice, but people who committed this crime were in Russia mm-hmm. and Russia uh strongly denied to extradite these people from Russia to UK. And only things what we could do to 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 make a public inquiry and to bring all evidence of this case to public view. Mm-hmm and we did it and uh it was a lot of uh difficulties difficulties and it was not so easy way and i'm afraid it will take me a very long time to talk about this mm-hmm. but um, result what we have was extraordinary because in this public inquiry, it was proof these two Russian suspects, Andrei Lugavo and Dmitry Kovtun, did this. They committed this crime. And even more, it was a Russian state behind all this crime. And it was very high probability Mr. Putin knew about this. And former director of FSB, Nikolai mm-hmm. Patrushev, as well, knew about this crime.
1: So given the presumed role of the Russian state in this Act, um, and the fact that the Russian state is not interested in extraditing the the individuals that you mentioned, what would you like to see the Western governments do uh, in response?
2: You're right. After we produced this public inquiry report and tried to show to all around the world, we need to do something with this. We need to stop Uh, people committing this crime, and it should not be happened again. But unfortunately, now, in two years after that, we need to talk about this again. And now it's another case. It's again in UK, in uh, Salisbury, mm-hmm. uh, against two people, uh, Sergei Skripal and Julia Skripal. And even more, uh, one British citizen, right. a woman, has died after she was contact with this uh, nerve agent. Mm-hmm. In this case, I could say something was not learned. And what we tried to bring for West government and to do something, it was... Uh, I can't say it did not take serious, but something was not done enough.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts as to what could be done differently or that might be more effective?
2: Uh, first of all, uh, we tried to talk about uh, sanctions then in 2016, and I am mm-hmm. absolutely agree with this process now. And this has to be... Uh, targeting sanctions. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about a general sanctions, but people who benefited from Putin's regime, who very close to, to Putin, and it's obvious they are exhausted. Uh, resource of Russia, like trading with oil and gas, mm-hmm. should be under sanctions. They don't, they're not allowed to spend their money here in the United States or in UK or in Europe and to, be, feel, to, to feel safe. And Mm -hmm. I think it's very serious, not just uh, individual, but a member of family.
1: Mm -hmm. And what sort of response have you gotten from the American government, the British government, uh, and others when you've made that kind of a proposal?
2: I had a few meetings here uh, for a few days, and it was a very good reception. Of course, it's not easy time because you are front of some election. and uh, we'll An election take...
1: where everybody is going to be talking about Russia.
2: Absolutely, yes. And uh, I, I think something is better to prevent than to solve the problem. And when we're talking about a very serious problem as Russia propaganda,
1: mm-hmm.
2: of course, it's a very sensitive material because we're talking about the freedom of speech mm-hmm. and what is a very protected here.
1: Right. Now, so we were talking about um, the poisoning cases. Yes. Um, no, obviously, Russian propaganda has been a big topic of discussion in the context of of American politics, in the context of transatlantic relations. What is the connection here? What do you see as the connection being between, um, you know, this issue of of propaganda, interference, whatever you want to call it, uh, on the one hand, and the the poisoning cases on the other?
2: No, it's a covering, because when you're watching Russian TV or when you're watching uh, a program on Russia today, it's obvious uh, Russia never done it. And and because Russia today is a very common TV channel in English all around the world, and it's very damaging for people watching this uh, channel because when you see is this like alternative news mm-hmm. channel, and you believe it might be truth. but uh, for people watching this TV, it makes a big uh, challenge, mm-hmm. and people just started disbelief to their own government and some to this uh, democracy. Uh, what you have, because uh, all information was provided during these uh, TV channels, I believe, very damaging. And what they tried to show during uh, uh, process of my husband case and uh, Sergei Skripal case, uh, it was not Russia at all. It was a British intelligence service. It was a CIA who tried to make an image of Russia as bad as possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it sounds like, given the limitations on what can be accomplished in, judicially, because you don't have the suspects, um, that this is really a case about public opinion. And it's a case about, uh, you know, do you or does the Russian government uh, have greater success in terms of mobilizing um, public opinion around the, the particular narrative that they're trying to construct? Is that sort of how you see it?
2: Yes, you're right. Public opinion in Russia uh, looks very strong, particularly after presidential election, and we see all this support to... uh current president of Russia and extending president of Russia for the last 18 years. But uh, it doesn't look exactly solid how they try to, to show this because uh, for last uh, process, and particularly oppositioners uh, protested in the street of uh, Moscow, and not only Moscow now, it's all around uh, the Russia, shows uh, propaganda machine is very strong. But if you work hard...
1: You be able to destroy it So th- this is a, you're talking about influencing public opinion inside Russia uh, or in, in Western countries
2: No what I said just now it was about R- Russia, but I just try to say how is it dangerous if it's out of out of Russia, particularly channel as Russia today uh, making this program on different languages try to make this uh, propaganda style news and make people around the world. To believe to this lying. And I would like to say it's so many Russian speaking people as well as it's citizens of United States or United Kingdom or European country, are people who are going to vote or for election. If they've been under this propaganda, you will just lost is a mm-hmm. very serious amount of people who would yeah. be I, I think
1: I don't know about the UK I think the, the Russian speaking population of the US is is relatively small I'm not sure that there's a, a part of the country where it has a decisive impact on elections though of course you know every community has some um, impact um I'm interested in in sort of your assessment of the the responses you know you're your husband was poisoned in in 2006. Um, The Skripals were poisoned just last year. So there's... Not even this year. year, Yeah, I guess it's still... It's March, last March. Yeah, we have a a strange conception of time right now. Um, So it was this year. Why do you think that, you know, 12 years later, nothing seems to have changed? Uh, Both were in the UK... Um, both were um, individuals who had been mm-hmm. part of the Russian security services and had, um, for lack of a better word, defected. You know, why wasn't your husband's case a, a, a wake-up call, or why didn't it seem to, to change anything?
2: So uh, still, two thousand six. If you remember, it's still period when everybody believed Russia going for a better future, and believe after uh, Soviet Union collapsed, Russia never ever turned back. It's not going to be any communist ideology. It's never going to be a cold war. And even this case, it was a very damaging for relationship between UK and Russia, but not other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, UK didn't receive this international support as strong as it happened. This year, in 2018, mm-hmm. and uh, business connection.
1: Why do you think that is? I mean, why was the support for the UK in 2006 so uh
2: Because between 2006 light. and 2018, we have a lot of things happened. We have experience with mm-hmm. Russia. It's Georgia, 2008. It's Ukraine in 2014. And Ukraine is not only country. We have Malaysian airplane and investigation. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of uh, facts, involvement of Russia. But never cooperated and doing something, and I think a very serious issue for United States involvement and election in 2016. Mm-hmm. And not only in the United States, it was proof in Germany, it was proof mm-hmm. in UK. So the and general
1: be- perception of Russia today is. And behavior is of Russia became
2: unacceptable, and of course, case of Skripal was mm-hmm. uh, so strong, taking and international supported because uh, you just said no more you have no more uh, chance to wait. Russia might be changed. Why? Because for last 18 years, we have only one president. We have only one people in a power. And every new president of the United States Believed if you take George Bush in two thousand, who met Putin and said, "I watched to his uh, soul and uh, to his eye, and I saw his Russian soul." <laughs> then we saw Barack Obama, who believed with Dmitry Medvedev, who was a president of Russia for this time, he might mm-hmm. make any change. And, I, and I'm not accusing these people because they believed.
1: Well, this, I, uh, I think this... there's an argument that you can make that there are U.S. national security interests that would be served from having a fundamentally different kind of relationship from Russia. And, I mean, that's a point that is debated constantly. Um, in this town. And there's always been this challenge. And I think the challenge is still there uh, of figuring out what the relationship is between, you know, on the one hand, advancing US security interests, mm-hmm. which having a good relationship with Russia may be beneficial for. And on the other hand, things that the Russian government does that for a variety of reasons we don't like or that we disapprove of. Um, and figuring out how to strike that balance has been very, very Difficult, and I would argue that we've made mistakes. We keep relearning the same lessons, and we're not sort of in any better position now than we were, you know, during the the Bush administration. In some ways, it's worse, but that doesn't change the the basic equation, which is that you know the United States has to have some kind of relationship with Russia, good or bad.
2: Uh, I agree. We can't ignore Russia at all, but you need to be sure who front of you. When it was a Cold War, it was. Obvious, you have a communist country with certain things, and you never ever try to prove to be better in a way what you think about democracy. Of course, you helped people in a way as a positioner or outspoken, but you never try to make people in a top. Mm-hmm. to understand what is this democracy for West country. But for Russia, which has changed since 1991, it was a very strong belief this country going in a democracy way. And it's yeah. still this dialogue and at the same level, but it doesn't work because people in the top of this country, they are not in a democratic level yeah. and they're not talking in the same way what you try to talk to them. And yeah. I believe what West government try to do is the best for Russia, but on the opposite side, these people as they're not state people. They're working for themselves. They're working for their pocket.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a good point because the idea of having a better relationship with Russia for a long time was predicated on the idea that Russia was at least becoming a democracy, even if it wasn't there, that it was on that path. Um, in the last several years, I think it's become pretty clear that that's not the case. Um, and we in the United States, and I think this is true in Europe as well, are really struggling with this issue of, uh, given what Russia is and the fact that it's not going to change in the ways that we may want to see it change, Mm -hmm. can you still have a, a functional relationship with it. And of course, that's in part a question about things that happen inside Russia. But as we've seen with the, the poisoning cases, sometimes this goes outside of Russia's borders. Mm. And then it becomes a, a different issue because now you're talking about issues that touch on the sovereignty of, of the UK and, and other countries where these sorts of things happen. Um, and so that adds an entirely additional layer to all of this. And, um, is there something special about the UK? I mean, why do these things keep seem to happening in, in the UK?
2: Uh, how we do know, UK was a very welcome for Russian money for last 18 years. It was acceptable. And many, many Russian wealthy people came to UK. They did buy property, they brought their family, they started a business. And some times, or even very often, it was not checking what this money came from. Mm -hmm. It looked like more money laundry. And uh, people, they took all this uh, profit from Russia and took this all money to to UK. And they decide, is now their own country? And they can do what they want. Mm -hmm. But now it's different. And after what happened... And
1: the UK, you think, was interested in, in taking this money just because... Yes, because there's more it's money a good coming for... into the country. Exactly. We don't want to look too closely. at where Exactly. It
2: You're absolutely right. It was just mm-hmm. a, a, like this. It doesn't matter what this money came from, but it's a good for British economy. Yeah. But for what happened uh, recently with the Magnitsky Law, mm-hmm. and now it started to be very serious, and particularly after Skripal and the British Parliament, it was a rising question, what Russian money were accepted? And even more, we have now in British Parliament a special Russian committee, not a foreign committee what was before, mm. It just Russia was a part of this, it's a special Russian committee. What does it do? They just try to understand how to deal with Russia <laughs> in a very, very difficult, a very different accept. And uh-huh. recently it was a public inquiry of human rights in uh-huh. Russia as well. And I would say attention to Russia politics and economy is a huge now in UK, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean is a Russophobia, not mm-hmm. at all, because people still love Russia. They accept Russia culture and uh, they love Russia history, but it's a. Uh, Important to divide Russia Mm -hmm. and this Kremlin regime. What we try to do every time, and supporting Mm -hmm. people in Russia who against of Kremlin or this autocratic regime is very important. No,
1: you live in the UK now, still right? So, as a a Russian or an immigrant from Russia, I mean, do you feel that the atmosphere towards Russians has has changed at all?
2: No, in some way, yes. In some way, not. It's, a, it's a maybe more interest to what happened mm-hmm. in Russia and more understanding. But what I say again, uh, people still uh, divide with all what it means, real Russia, uh-huh. with what all happened to Russia. And even what I try to do, I believe it's for Russia. It's not against Russia.
1: Yeah. But ordinary people, you know, if you say, oh, you're from Russia, they don't you know, respond differently, perhaps, than they would have a couple of years ago.
2: I would say they do a little bit uh, nervous because all we're going back to Russian propaganda. Mm-hmm. If you watch Russian TV in the two minutes, you will be shocked how all presented, all West all relationship to West. And people living in Russia believe they're just uh, uh, surrounded by enemies Mm -hmm. and everybody, uh, Russia to be down and nobody want Russia to be wealthy (laughs) and successful. How all this propaganda works, it's in a different level, even for children. And this, of course, makes some uh, big problem. But last World Cup makes some change. Mm -hmm. And when for one month, board was open for many, many different people from different countries. And Russian people saw people love them. And they're happy to celebrate this uh, nice uh, World Cup championnat. And Russian people were allowed to do what they never allowed to do <laughs> before. They could not stay before uh, more than midnight in a street in the center mm-hmm. of Moscow, drink some right. nice wine, sing but this is was part of real life and i think it's helped russian people some realize it's not exactly what they could see mm-hmm. from tv
1: yeah i know i have to say i, I watched the uh the russia croatia game in the world cup here okay. and uh all the americans were cheering for croatia uh <laughs> which i suppose was likely the case in in the uk as well um this question of, of Russian money, um, given the, the heightened scrutiny, how much has changed? I mean, has there actually been a, a change not only in the in legislation, but in terms of, of behavior? As, do you see evidence that there's less Russian or other kind of dirty money going into the UK now compared to the situation before the, the Skripal case?
2: No, it, it's a, it's a very hard uh, work. You can't say this happened immediately. But what I for sure, it's a lot of investment visas now cancelled mm-hmm. or checked. In a most famous uh, right um, case, we know Abramovich. about Abramovich. Yes, yeah. who ha- finally didn't receive this, and actually it was every time big question why others people close to Putin under sanctions, but mm-hmm. not Abramovich, and it's all happened. Mm-hmm. And now uh, and maybe
1: it's about soccer again. yes,
2: but uh, uh, what I understand from my life in UK, it's not all happened immediately, Mm -hmm. but if this process has started, they do this very, very proper and hard. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would just like to say, uh, in some reason, I'm here in, mm-hmm. in Washington. Yeah, can you tell me I'm, a little bit about you. Yes, because your uh, I'm supporting is a good friend of my family and person who helped me during this all long process to get justice for my husband. Mm-hmm. It's Alexander Goldfarb, uh-huh. and he's a co-writer a book a "Death of Dissident," we published in 2007. And he finally became a target of mm-hmm. Russian propaganda on Russian TV. Mm-hmm. And they, after 12 years, blamed Alexander Galtfarb killed my husband. And he was CIA agent. Mm-hmm. And all this operation was produced by uh, CIA. And it was shown uh, five times uh, on Russian TV.
1: This was like a, a documentary or a, a quote-unquote As a talk show. It was uh, a talk show. Talk show.
2: It was a talk show in a prime time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, millions millions of people watching this inside of Russia, outside mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Russia. And we decided the best way to fight against propaganda is take these people to the court. Mm-hmm. And because Alex Goldfarb is an American citizen and he felt this climb in Ma- Manhattan uh, court, mm-hmm. And we will see what is going to be next.
1: So he filed a claim against...
2: Against uh, two channels. Uh-huh. One is a state Russian channel, mm-hmm. number one, and another one, Russia Today.
1: Okay. I'm not a lawyer. I have no insight into how this will be litigated. But, yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the challenges in the U.S., of course, is, is we mentioned before, the First Amendment. Um, and you know propaganda, whatever, disinformation, whatever you want to call it is covered by the first Amendment, you know for good or ill um and so I'm curious on, on what basis um mr goldfarb is uh is bringing a case
2: no first of all uh, of course, before he decided to go to the court, he consulting with lawyers, mm-hmm. and it was all proper uh case. And it's a discussion about uh, people who committed this lie knew truth. Mm-hmm. And this some certain stuff okay. where well, they can avoid this, like uh, freedom of speech, mm-hmm. or people so like can say what they want. Absolutely. Uh, no, no, no. The, it's, uh, uh, yeah. it's absolutely solved. And mm-hmm. uh, we will see what is going to be next.
1: Okay, and so this was just recently filed in court?
2: Yeah, it happened just last week. Okay. And uh, we went uh, for many meetings here around in Washington in a context of uh, what happened to Alex Goldfarb to talk about how we can punish the people produced this propaganda. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, we talk about uh, this sanctions list, you know, if it's a possible, because it never happened before people, editors of a channels mm-hmm. of TV being... Uh, uh, in a list of sanctions, uh-huh. and we discuss it might be would be a reason to put these names in the sanctions mm-hmm. list. So as this well.
1: is a, another group of people that they may consider adding to the, the existing sanctions list.
2: Yes, because uh, power of uh, media in Russia is so strong, it's in the hands only one people, mm-hmm. and you can't find any different opinion or challenge. It's all exactly the same and mm-hmm. under control.
1: Marina, I know you have to run, but I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, the future of Russia and um you know whether you think that uh, there's any prospect for for political change that you might be able to go back to Russia one day. I I I,
2: I think myself I'm optimist. If I was not optimist, I would be not able to <laughs> to do what I did for the last 12 years. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I would be mm-hmm. completely out of all of us. Either. But uh, Future of Russia, we saw in a protest two years ago, this year, I mean, this young generation. Mm-hmm. And I believe these people will be able to, to, to make a future for Russia. And they're very strong. Of course, some of them beaten. Some of them need to go already from Russia. But they are all Russian. And I don't think this regime will extend for long because it's not alive. Mm. It's, tr- it's strong for now, but not alive. And the future would be in the hands of these young, bright
1: people. Yeah, well, the only constant is change, I suppose. But it's always a question of what does change look like? Uh, I
2: know. I know what you mean. It would be some revolution or would be a peaceful process. But uh, we remember Soviet Union collapsed uh, because of economical reasons. And situation of Russia is not good
1: yeah, I think the Soviet Union collapsed for a lot of reasons. A big one was Gorbachev. Um,
2: no, but it's not only. It's exhausting of economically when price of oil was so low, yeah. and war in Afghanistan was right. so damaging. That's to... what allowed
1: Gorbachev to happen. And,
2: uh, yes, but of course uh, this situation not likely because uh, Putin never allowed uh, any strong person uh, opposite him to be in the power. Why we don't have a uh, uh, opposition, real opposition in the parliament? because they just don't like it. They're afraid of this. But, again, economical situation doesn't help for this regime for now.
1: Yeah, well, it's uh, Russia always has a way of surprising us. Um, exactly. Marina, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much.
0: All right, let's read okay. the mail. <laughs> Let's, uh, why don't you read the first one and I'll answer it and then I'll read the second okay. one and you'll answer it and we'll have conversations in between.
1: There we go. Uh, our first message uh, comes to us from Charles Lee uh, in Paris. Charles writes, hello, Russian roulette. Uh, well, hello, Charles. Um, <laughs>
0: Hi, Charles. <laughs> something
1: I've been thinking about a lot lately uh, that I haven't found a good answer to is about Russian patronymics. Uh, specifically, I'm curious about same-sex couples and what do they do for naming their children. I'm curious about same-sex parents in Russia more generally, of course. Uh, everyone I've asked this question to so far has says, well, first you flee the country. Uh, okay. So how strictly codified is the patronymic system? Uh, there are cases where the father's not known, the child is a foundling, there have been other kinds of uh, solutions come, that have been come up with. Uh, so what do you do uh, if you're a same-sex couple in Russia and you have or adopt a child?
0: Well, Charles, uh, you actually named a lot of the things that have historically been done. Um, I think way back in the day, it was very common to give uh, the child a name that was based on the saint's name. But today, um, basically, it's up to the mother, it's up to the parents what is written in the mat patronymic line. So they can put down the father's name, or they can put down something else. Um, now, most people where you have a couple which includes one or more fathers is probably going to use a patronymic based on one or the other father's name. Uh, if there isn't one, they can use a matronymic if so inclined. They can use the matronymic of one of the mothers if there's more than one. Uh, you can use a close male relative, family friend. You can make something up. Uh, now, and this applies to both same-sex couples and other uh, opposite uh, sex couples
1: so the state the state doesn't regulate it.
0: The, no I mean you need to put down a patronymic right but you can write what you want in there uh, you're gonna have a hard time being a same sex couple in Russia for all sorts of other reasons right the, which is why the,
1: first you flee the country the,
0: cho- the choice of the patronymic for your child is probably uh, a tertiary worry at best and it's not one that's actually going to affect you all that much you just pick something so generally speaking yes you have to have a patronymic but you're free to come up with it um, and then your child will deal with whatever social repercussions uh, they're going to face as a result. So let's move on to the next question. This one comes from Philip Addy in Italy, who writes, um, In your experience, do influential American politicians and policy officials know that Crimea was transferred to the then-Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1954, and without the consent of the population, Uh, do these politicians and policy officials think that Crimea was always a part of Ukraine? Jeff, do you want to, as, a, as an historian, do you want to take <laughs> sure. first crack at this
1: one? Well, let's start with the the first part of this question, which is, do influential American politicians and policy officials uh, think about the historical background of Crimea and its status? I would say, as a rule, no. Um, American policymaking tends to be pretty ahistorical. Um, Americans tend to be pretty ahistorical. Um, so I don't anticipate um, most American commentators or decision makers uh, having a great sense of the The back and forth over uh, Crimea. Now, as far as what Crimea, quote unquote, always was, that's uh, a different proposition, because the answer is, well, it depends what point uh, in time you're looking at. Uh, I think there's a danger in assuming that a particular piece of land, whether it's Crimea or for that matter, Texas or, uh, take your pick, you know, always belonged to the people who happen to live there now or who lived there at some particular point in time. Uh, history is, uh, the study of change over time. I mean, the
0: United States wasn't a country until 1776 or so, right? Right.
1: Um, and you know, it's the same with Crimea. So, um, for several hundred years, Crimea was the homeland of a nomadic Khanate. People who were, uh, descended from the Mongols, uh, who spoke a a Turkic language from um, the early Middle Ages. They were conquered by the Russian Empire in the 18th century, and hundreds of thousands of them left. uh, During that period, Uh, many of them fled to the Ottoman Empire and their descendants um, became Turks. And then Crimea was um, part of the Russian Empire, which did not distinguish Russian and Ukrainian areas uh, up until the very end. Uh, it was only during the Soviet period where this question of national delimitation of borders really became an issue. Um, and yes, during during that period, uh, Crimea became part of the uh, Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic um, and was transferred to Ukraine in 1954, which was not a problem in the context of the Soviet Union because it was all one country.
0: Right. So it's not quite a matter, matter without the consent of the population. I'm not sure it mattered that much to the population.
1: Yeah. Or if it did, I mean this is the Soviet Union and whether the population was for or against it was less than a tertiary consideration I suppose. Though
0: I've been told by uh, older colleagues who lived there or visited there that there were kind of Ukrainian language courses and things that you had to go to if you were happened to be a child in mm-hmm. the in the late 50s in Crimea.
1: Yeah. It only really became a big issue when the Soviet Union collapsed. And now all of a sudden, Ukraine and Russia are different countries. Most of the population in Crimea didn't speak Ukrainian um, to the extent they had an ethnic identity.
0: Despite the language courses they were forced to take as children. uh,
1: Or the ones who grew up there did. I think a lot of those people came from elsewhere because they were serving with the Black Sea Fleet or whatever it was. But most of those people didn't think of themselves as Ukrainians. Um, And so to the extent that Ukraine sought to become a nation state, sought to create a a kind of ethno-national identity, um, it was always going to be problematic in Crimea.
0: Though there was a lot of uh, identity confusion in Ukraine as a whole. And saying that does not mean, for instance, that uh, Jeff or I or I'll just speak for myself, I I still think the referendum was faked, right? Knowing that a lot of Crimeans were not particularly comfortable as Ukrainians did not mean that they were going to go out and vote to be part of Russia.
1: At the very least, the Russian government didn't want to take that chance. Um, Whether a free and fair referendum would have had the result that the actual referendum did, of course, is a hypothetical question. Um, But I think what's knowable is that the Russian government was unsure enough about that outcome that it didn't want to take the chance. And so it it ran a, a rigged referendum.
0: That's it for our show today. We've got a link uh, to Marina's bio in the show notes. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and maybe leave us a rating or review. Um, If you're not an iTunes user, check out the podcast and subscribe via Google Play or on SoundCloud. And if you like the podcast, tell your friends, family, random strangers how (laughs) much you like the podcast. Encourage them, too, to subscribe to Russian Roulette.
1: And if you liked uh, listening to us answer mailbag questions today, and even if you didn't, uh, you If <laughs> you, can... you think
0: better mailbag <laughs> questions could have been asked.
1: Yes. Uh, and maybe you've gotten better answers. Uh, please send us your mailbag questions.
0: The ones we got were excellent. Yes. Which is why we chose
1: them. Yes. Um, send them to rep at csis.org uh, with the words Russian roulette in the subject line.
0: Follow the program on Twitter. It's at CSIS Russia. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Olya Olikar and Jeff's at Dr. J. ManCuff.
1: And of course, once again, uh, thanks to all the people who make the podcast possible. Uh, That includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Kimberly Schuster, uh, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team.
0: Thanks for tuning in.